Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. California has just come through seven years of drought and then faced floods. Rivers and creeks crested. The phantom Tulare Lake, dry since the 1930s, reemerged. But this feast of famine cycle is nothing new, as Mark Arax explains in The Dreamt Land, chasing water and dust across California, his epic sweeping history of water in the Golden State, which traces today's systemic tragedy from its birth to uh, modern day. Today's floods are just the latest iteration of an age-old cycle, made worse as farmers turn desert into farmland and suburbs continue their seemingly unending expansion. We're going to talk about uh, this uh, important subject, the dreamt land. Mark Erex on the uh, program uh, today. Mark Erex, uh, thanks for joining us. It's good to be with you. Uh, I understand uh, this is um, uh, in some ways personal, right? You come from farming uh, family there in Central Valley. In fact, I was fascinated to learn your grandfather, was it, after the Armenian genocide, had a chance to go to uh, Sorbonne or Fresno? Yeah, that was his choice in, in 1920. He could go to Paris or Fresno. And he had a, the last patriarch in our family who survived the genocide had come to the middle of California. And he was writing him this, these letters. My grandfather was in Constantinople, Istanbul, telling him, you have to come west. We have created a new Armenia here at the foot of the Sierra and the San Joaquin Valley. So there it was before the family, Paris or France, uh, Paris, France, or Fresno. <laughs> and my grandfather chose the latter, <laughs> much to all our regret. No, no, just, just, just kidding. Um, <laughs> right. Now, now the letters that, uh, that persuaded him to come were quite glowing. Um, he, he came out and found that the, uh, the, actual, the actuality wasn't quite as glowing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was the myth of California already being sold. So this patriarch was telling him how the grapes out here hung from the vine like jade eggs, and the watermelons were so capacious that you could take their flesh, eat it, and then float down the irrigation canals in the shells of the watermelons. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so he, he, uh, he, he painted a lovely picture, and my grandfather took the bait. Now, this, this uh, myth of California, selling of California, that's, that's nothing new, right? That's... Uh, that, that's been there for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, California is one of the greatest stories that could ever be told. I mean, can you think of an act of hubris more epic than California? Except, you know, we don't call it hubris. We call it a dream. And, and to invent California, we had to invent the grandest system for moving water the world had ever seen. And think of the proposition. We, we, we take this edge of a continent a thousand miles long, a, a chunk of earth where it rains 140 inches in one spot and five inches in another spot, and we call it one state. But that state has like eight or nine different states of nature inside of it. So how do we even out those differences? So we build the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, which I call the system. It was, it is magnificent. I mean, it created two, if not three, world-class cities and the most extensive and intensive farm region in the world. But look what's happened over 60 years. The population of California has grown from 11 million to 40 million. And that system is now cracking. And it's into those cracks that I go for five years trying to puzzle out this place. 
And this, it is incredible what this area produces. Whether sustainable or not is another question, right? But a quarter of the, the food in the United States is produced in that Central Valley? Yeah, I mean, if, when you look at, uh, this, uh, you know, this is, this is the kingdom of specialty crops. We can grow fruits, vegetables, and nuts, you know, with a kind of fecundity that cannot be grown anywhere else. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, we, you know, 240 crops. I wouldn't call it a bread basket. It's kind of a combination of a fruit basket, a nut basket, and a and uh, I don't mean nuts. I mean I mean almonds and pistachios. <laughs> yeah, and the Central Valley, fifty miles wide, four hundred miles long. I hadn't realized the the, the, the geography there. Just just in you know, oh, it's incredible. stunning. It's a stunning middle, and and it, and it's the other California. You know, it gets ignored by the East Coast media. You know, they they go from L.A. and the, and the myth of L.A. and the, and 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 and, the, and and all that, the mirage of L.A. to the Silicon Valley in San Francisco, and yet in that vast middle is this other place. And it really, you know, as a kid growing up, I could never figure out this place. It felt like the South, the South of the United States, and why? Because the, the literally the the cotton plantation. The, the, the growers of cotton in Georgia and the South were chased out by the boll weevil in the 1920s, and they came here to bring, to graft the cotton plantation onto this land. And they, they not only brought their cotton and their African-American workers, but they brought their mint juleps and a whole way of life. So growing up in the San Joaquin Valley, it was almost as if you were growing up in the South. Um, this, uh, I was reading an interview you, you gave where you talked about, was it your grandmother? Was this, is she told you don't go to the canal? Well, yeah. So you're, so here I am. We, we, before I was born, we had, we had sold our last ranch. We were farmers. My grandfather was a farmer. My dad went to Fresno state and majored in viticulture and, and, but we sold the farm by the time I was born. And I grew up in the suburbs of, of, of Fresno. And even though we were surrounded by a sea of agriculture, you really, you really didn't see it unless you went out. And, and so, you know, here we are uh, on a block um, where, where there were these irrigation canals knifing through our neighborhoods. And my grandmother told me there was a, actually a, a huge canal just three houses down uh, from hers. And, and never go ne- next to that, she said. Don't go there. And I'd ask why. She says, well, when you climb that embankment and get to the top, you will find yourself dizzy and you will fall in and no one will come to save you. Okay. I, well, and I said, well, why? She says, because the flow of one irrigation canal cannot be stopped. It's more important to the valley than the body of one silly boy. Uh, and there, <laughs> there's the story, you know, writ small, right? It's, it's, uh, this it is, is, this is cutthroat. It's, uh, uh, so I want to talk about the artificiality of this. Uh, it, it's, it's man, um, dominating nature, but there, there's a price to pay. Um, and this, I think is where you started, at least the journey for this book was, uh, the, these, the, the drought and the drought and flood cycle. Um, and the, you know, the water's drying up. But the uh, the farmers, the big farmers at least, are continuing to uh, expand. I think that's what that's the right. question you had. Why? Why? How, <laughs> how right. can you do that? So, 
I wanted to tell a compelling story that, that wove together the memoir, my family's story, with reportage in the land today, and then the history, because what was going on today, um, the seeds of it were planted, you know, all the way back with, um, you know, the, the missionaries coming over and, and destroying the Indian culture, and then the gold rush, and, and, and the Mormons are involved in that. It's a fascinating thing that we can delve into. But what I was finding on the land today was something paradoxical. Um, in the midst of the worst drought in California's modern history, the big farmers were actually growing bigger. And it made no sense because the system that they were relying on, the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, had zero deliveries in these years. They weren't delivering water. And, and, and so the farmers were going deeper into the earth with these massive pumps and wells and extracting this water. And they were extracting, extracting it to such an extent that the land itself was sinking, not, not by inches, but by feet. And this sinking w- was complicating the irrigation system because it, it, re- it relied on gravity flow. And the gravity flow was actually lost. So as I was going into these empires of fruits and nuts, I couldn't figure out how in the midst of drought they, 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 were, they, they had record crops on their trees. And that's the mystery that kind of launches me into this story. Yeah, that's incredible. We'll, uh, we'll revisit that as we go along. I want to um, pick that up. Uh, so the, the, the entire Central Valley has sunk. And as you said, not by a little. Uh, and there's an incredible photograph. Yeah. Um, Joe Poland, right, is a, a, I can't remember what his position was. He wanted to to demonstrate this, and so he picked a telephone pole, right? Can you tell us about that? He did. So in the 1970s, when we had uh, another historic drought, you know, this is our story. We have these historic, historic droughts, and then as soon as they're over, we forget about them, this collective amnesia. And Joe Poland wanted to remind us forever of the consequences of pumping and drought. So he's a, he's a scientist for the, for the U.S. Geological Survey. And for 30 years, he's collecting this data, which is showing the land is sinking. But no one's paying attention. So he's a fan of, of the old newspaper column, Ripley's Believe It or Not. And he decides, he's a very sober scientist, but he decides he's going to do something dramatic. So he picks a telephone pole in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley, where it's sunk, the land is sunk, and he takes a sign and he puts it at the top of the telephone pole, and it says something like 19, you know, 30, 40, 50. And then at the bottom of the pole, he puts 1977, and he stands next to it, and it's such a dramatic, you know, kind of rendering, because you could see that in that 40, 50-year time, the land had sunk the length of this telephone pole. And 30 feet or something, right? Oh, yeah, no, it was 30 feet, yes. Yeah. And, um, and, and what was stunning about it is all around him, the land was flat, so it's, it had sunk in this kind of uniform fashion, um, but at a cost because all the infrastructure around it had, had to sink with it and had to be rebuilt time and again. Um, right now, we have this great aqueduct which carries water along a 700-mile stretch of California. And it goes from our delta all the way up and over the mountains to Los Angeles. 
and that aqueduct in huge parts of it has sunk so much that the water no longer goes by gravity. It has to be pumped at a great cost of electricity to the citizens of California to get the water through its dead spots. Is the, uh, is the valley continuing to sink? Yeah, it's continuing to sink um, be- uh, because, you know, th- these wells are going down 2,000 feet, drawing out that water. And, that, and when you draw out that water, it's like almost collagen in the skin that the land sags. And no matter how much water comes in the next flood, that aquifer never recovers its collagen, so it's forever sunk. Mm. Uh, there, there's a <laughs> you recount a conversation with I think this is a friend of yours, uh, or you become friendly with him, um, and he's drilling. He's drilling deeper and deeper. It looks like oil derricks, right? And, yeah, and, it looks like a Texas oil field he set up. So in the midst of drought, I go out on the land with these farmers, and one of the first farmers I pick is, a, is a, an old high school buddy. and He's farming 10,000 acres of nuts, and he can't figure out why his pistachios aren't being fertilized. So in a pistachio orchard, you have one male pistachio for every 24 females. And the farmer has a sense of humor. He paints the trunk of that male pistachio rooster red. And, and what, what my friend couldn't figure out was that the, 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 the female pistachios were ready to be pollinated, but the males were at least two months behind. And what, what he ended up puzzling out was that our climate had changed to such a degree that we were not getting the chilling hours in winter that put that male pistachio on the right calendar. So, so the male pistachio was not fertilizing the female. And he actually had to bring in artificial, artificial pollen, and he shot it out into his orchard via... The, 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 the thing that, go, you know, this, this blowing machine. And so um, he admitted to me something that uh, a lot of farmers are loath to admit, that agriculture was changing in the valley because of global warming. And this story in general uh, hasn't received a whole lot of uh, press. right? Why, why is that? Which story? You mean the story the, of uh, the... the, the Global warming. The, uh, well, well, just the just the agriculture in the Central Valley and the the changes there. Well, well, the the middle of California has been kind of geographically exiled from the rest of of the state, and it's been psychically exiled as well. And and people they, they come here and they see this wide open expanse, and it's it's so open that it's that it's that it's forbidding, and and and, and so. You know, to delve into it takes a lot of patience. And, and I think that's what I bring to this story is that I'm a native and I know this land. Now, that makes it difficult because, you know, you're living in a place that you're hanging out the dirty laundry of that place. And, and so, you know, uh, you're loved and hated. Um, but this is the story. So it, it doesn't get a lot of attention. And during the drought or the flood, the journalists parachute in, and they come in with their East Coast stereotypes of the land, and and, and they miss a lot of what's happening, you know, on the earth here, you know, in the ground, into those orchards and fields. By the way, a side trip here, um, 
seems to be kind of a, a pattern, it maybe of necessity, but how do we change that? I'm thinking, you know, journalists parachute in if you have spectacular drought or floods, et cetera, et cetera, but they don't know the whole story. You're there, you, you have more of it. Um, after 2016, um, and, and President Trump wins the election, journalists parachute into rural America, <laughs> do anthropological yeah. studies. Uh, there's a lot of parachuting going on. I don't know how we change the journalism paradigm. Yeah, they, they go in, they, they, you know, they hang out at a few bars, and they meet some of the locals, and then they try to, you know, to tell that story. I mean, you know, out here in California, they, they come to document apocalypse, you know, and, and then they leave. Um, I was trying to do something, uh, you know, uh, a lot more than that, and, um, and hell, the, the book ended up being, uh, you know, kind of an epic story that starts with the gold rush, you know. We manifest destiny, kind of, you know, developed uh, the United States east to west. But we did, we had kind of a manifest destiny on steroids because the gold rush happens in 1849. And the mining of gold is the mining of water first. And, um, and so there's this supercharged beginning to California. And, 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 and that becomes part of our hard wiring, our DNA. And so everything about California is supercharged to this, to this day. And that culture of extraction that started in the mountains with gold then came down onto the valley floor. And, and so we went from mining gold to mining soil. Um, and this theme of... Uh... You have a quote, and I'm trying to remember this. Uh, the water shaped the history in California. At a certain point, the the people started shaping the water. That's right. I mean, the 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 degree with which we bent water is it's just stunning to to behold. I mean, we have taken these rivers, five six rivers, these great rivers, the Sacramento, the San Joaquin, and we literally made them run backward by plant by by putting dams by sluicing that water first into wooden flumes for gold and then into ditches and canals for agriculture. And, 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 and then we put pumps along the, the, those stretches. I mean, the rivers aren't really rivers here. If you look at them, they've been straight-jacketed by, 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 by levees and, 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 um, and dikes, and, and they've been made they can, that you can actually plant enough pumps along there to turn their flow onto themselves. So it's a level of manipulation that really, um, the, the, the altering of the land here is the most dramatic alteration by humans in the history. Um, that's what geologists have called this valley. Mm. The flattening of it, the draining of its marshes, the killing of its wildlife, the geese, the, 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 you know, the tule elk, all of that, and then creating this manufactured place, which is its own miracle. The one thing that struck me, you mentioned it just there, uh, flattening of the land. Used to be hills there, it was flattened. That's one of, the, one of the changes that's happened. The San Joaquin Valley had these hillocks, okay? And in the 1870s, as California decided, as the rivers were being polluted by gold mining, and the state decided that it was going to now, the future was agriculture. 
they unleashed this thing called the Fresno Scraper. I live in Fresno. The Fresno Scraper was this hunk of metal. They put it at the end of these horses, and they and they flattened the hog wallows of California. Hmm. And in the middle of the, I think the entire length, almost of the Central Valley, um, there's this concrete river, right? This uh, this part of the, the aqueduct. The, the aqueduct, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Which the is, aqueduct that, that 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 flows. I mean, what we ended up doing to even out those differences, we had to move the rain. You know, and and moving the rain is an extraordinary process. Uh, you know, you dam the rivers, then you take those flows into ditches and canals and aqueducts and you keep moving it, and where gravity helps you, you take advantage of it. Where, where, where gravity is against you, you pump like hell to get that water through. And, then, and, then, and so it's this, it, it really, to look at it from the air, it looks like the human body's circulatory system. You know, and the heart of it is the delta, the delta where the San Joaquin River and the Sacramento River meet just outside of the San Francisco Bay. And, 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 and that is a, uh, an environment that we're changing by all this pumping. And the folks in the Delta who initially agreed to allow their water to go to southern parts of the state because their rivers were flooding, and so they, they could give some of their river water to the rest of the state, they're now getting tired of giving their water to the rest of the state. And, and, and this is where the system is cracking. You have these tribes, I call them tribes of Southern California, the tribes of the middle, the tribes of the north, warring over this water. Where's it going to go? And it's, it's certainly not going to take us into a future of more houses and more almonds. Something has to give. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, begin to answer that question. We, where do we go? And you say, as you say, something has to give. It, it, this this uh, this system's not sustainable. Uh, and what are the consequences of you know, um, you know bending the rivers, uh, moving the rain? Um, this is not happening only in California, of course. Happening all over the the West. So that West in the resonances for for all of us. And a quarter of our food is coming from that Central Valley in the United States, so big consequences. That's just one of them. Uh, we're talking with Mark Erex. Uh, his latest book is The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change and Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. I'm Greg Dalton. On the next Climate One, we all know we should be recycling, but that's only one part of the story. The real challenge? Making less, buying less, and throwing less away. So this vision for the future, we become owners of things, not consumers of them. That's a big and radical shift. Can a circular economy salvage the climate on the next Climate One? Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state. Musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. 
Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org, click on the community calendar link, and review the submission guidelines. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is journalist Mark Arax. Uh, his latest book, The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across uh, California. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would like to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Mark Eriks, I want to just read a couple sentences here from your prologue. Um, you talk about the journey you're, you've made across the Central Valley. You say, I keep walking until I find myself straddling one of those divides that happen in the West, maybe only in the West. Behind me, the hard line of agriculture ends. In front of me, the hard line of desert begins. In between, when's the concrete vein that funnels the snowmelt from one end of California to the other? This this hard line, artificial line, agriculture, and then suddenly you have desert. Uh, illustration that uh, over time the uh, people have carved out agriculture from the desert. So it's a weird desert here. When you look, when you measure it by rainfall, it indeed qualifies as a desert. But look just forty miles away, and you see the Sierra, the Blue Sierra. And it's blue for a reason. It's, it's got all our water there. And so the temptation is, 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 you know, it's so obvious. Let's go and get that water. Let's take that snow melt and do something with it. And so those Sierras um, uh, kind of uh, make this a, a, a desert with special benefits. And, and so that temptation to take, uh, you can understand it. So, so it's 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 weird. It's different from Utah in that way. In that, in, in that the Sierra is such an incredible resource of water. Now, you mentioned before the break, and this is a key question going forward that that you asserted, and I think we all can understand, of uh, that this system that's been created that we've talked about is not sustainable, and so there are going to have to be some decisions made. And I would guess, uh, living in the West myself, uh, this is going to be a messy process making those decisions: uh, rural versus urban, you know, cities versus agriculture. Those those co- types of choices are going to have to be made. What I worry about is we're going to take the best farmland in the world here, and we're going to pave it over with suburbia, and it, it's 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 a worry that. You know, all you have to do is go up and over the mountain to Los Angeles to see that such a thing happened once before. And so what is the future of this middle? Are we just going to pave um, this, this great land over with, with, with houses and mini malls? And that is the question before us. And, and so what we decided in the midst of this last drought, and in drought, interestingly enough, becomes the one time that we actually tackle this, this kind of conundrum in, in, uh, uh, of our existence, our experiment out here in California. And we, we take on and, and actually do some things that might uh, be called solutions. And so this last drought, we decided to regulate groundwater for the first time in our 165-year history. Now, that may sound strange to your listeners, because um, 
you know, they have an impression that California is an overregulated state and that we're on the cutting edge of all this environmental reform and have been since the 1960s. But when it came to groundwater, we were one of the last states in the country to regulate it. So now we've decided with this new law that we're going to regulate groundwater. Uh, we're, 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 we're starting to measure water in each of these basins. It's going to take 20 years to put the law into effect. But what you're going to see is in the middle of the state where I'm at, you're going to see the farmland end up following. And, 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 and it sounds like a bad thing, but it can be a good thing. Let me explain why. So we initially grew agriculture um, right along the alluvial plains of our rivers. And we took our rivers, and by 1880, we had used up all of their flows for agriculture. The rivers were claimed by agriculture. Then the turbine pump came in the 1920s, right when my grandfather came to the United States. You know, to California. And that pump allowed the farmer then to go into the ground to get his water. And so you saw the expansion, the footprint of agriculture go from primo land to more marginal land. And then we developed the drip irrigation system. And that allowed farming to go from marginal land to poor land. Suddenly, because of drip's reach, you could farm the hillsides. You could farm rocky ground. You could farm ground that was sodden with alkali. That's where our footprint of agriculture went too far. And so this, this groundwater law is going to come in, and it will probably mean that the 6 million acres of agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley alone, that doesn't count the Sacramento Valley, those 6 million will probably be reduced to 4 to 4.5 million, and we'll have a more sustainable farm what uh, what are the farmers saying are they are they resisting this there was initial resistance but they saw that it couldn't be sustained as well the farmers in the best land their water the water they were getting from the rivers the water they were getting from the state and central valley project the water they were drawing up from the aquifer via their pumps that water was being dispersed in a wider and wider uh, area as the footprint went bigger and bigger. And so they see that there has to be a, 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 a contraction of that now. So the best land can get the best water. Mm-hmm. It's going to be ugly. There's going to be wars and there's going to be lawsuits. But it will happen and we will have a much more sustainable middle. The question then becomes, will the farmer decide, because maybe the price of nuts isn't as high as it was uh, with trade wars and everything else. Will that farmer decide that that water is much more valuable as a commodity to be sold to the city rather than a commodity to grow his crop? And that's what we don't know. Now you're worried about suburban sprawl, right? Uh, that and if, if enough farmers sell their water to the city, then that's going to promote that kind of uh, population increase, uh, stretching sub- suburbia out into the farmland. I've never seen a suburban tract ever go from suburbia back to agriculture. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. And so, um, yes, that that's my concern, um, that we're going to pave over this incredible farmland. It's got problems. The pesticide use, not just the bending of water, but the bending of man. 
I mean, look at what we've done for a century and a half. We've imported our labor. My grandfather worked the fields before he became a farmer. And now with those folks, we go deeper and deeper into the rural heart of Mexico to draw those workers out. So it's a kind of manipulation. It's the bending of water. It's the bending of soil. It's the bending of man. It's the bending of chemical. It's even the bending of bees. We're importing, I can't tell you how many millions and millions and millions of beehives. We import them every winter so we can put, uh, pollinate a flower and turn it into a nut. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, it's, it, it just seems like the greater and greater reach to, to uh, help sustain the, these areas. I want to follow up. You t- talked about bending of man, and this is an interesting, seems like a paradox, uh, that the politics of, of agriculture here in the Central Valley, and specifically with regard to uh, immigration. That's right. I wonder if you'd uh, talk about that a little bit. So you would see it in these episodes. Um, the latest episode was when Donald Trump came to the middle of California. He told us there was no drought that nature, this wasn't nature's drought, it was man's drought, that man had created this scarcity for the farmer, and that if he won, he was going to make the rivers flow again into the middle of California. Um, there were many farmers who were holding up farmers for Trump signs. At the same time that Trump was talking about building a wall and banning the migration of people from Mexico into California. Ostensibly, on the face of it, you would think the farmer would not like this. I mean, this is his labor, right? Uh, Trump is talking about drying up his labor. And yet the farmers were supporting him. So when you, when you dug into that a little bit, when you go into the coffee shops and ask the farmers about this thing that is seemingly paradoxical, you know, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face by supporting this, here's what they say. And it's a lesson in real politics. They say, look, no matter what Trump builds, no matter what laws are passed, the migrant will find a way to go from Mexico into the fields of California. We know that. We also know that that migrant, if he organizes into a union, can really make trouble for the farmer. So we support this ugly talk. We support the talk of, of, of keeping migrants out of California, knowing that they will come in, but we want them to come here always feeling a little insecure about their place here, always feeling a little iffy. And that is the lesson in real politics of hmm. immigration here in California. Yeah, it's in- interesting to have that perspective. Uh, and I guess since the days of Cesar Chavez, uh, the... Uh, the, the power remains with the with the growers, I'm guessing? Yes, because just think how impossible it is to, to sustain a union like the United Farm Workers when your workforce is always getting replenished by people coming over the border who are willing to work for a cheaper wage. So it's like, it's like trying to build something in, in, in the sand of an ocean to dig a hole there. You can't. Um, the sand keeps filling up. So, so when, 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 when those folks keep coming over, it undermines the bargaining position of a union. 
And uh, you're you're saying this is interesting that uh, agriculture not worried about uh, more and more restrictive immigration policies. They feel like the migrant workers will always find a way. They're not worried about it theoretically. But the reality is that if it really, truly pinches down, they'll be the first to whine and complain. Um, Look at the trade wars now. You know, we have made this huge bet. Our bet used to be wheat. In the 1880s, we grew more wheat than any place in the world. Then it was raisins. We produced more raisins than any place in the world. Then it was cotton, the great cotton patches of Tulare Lake. Now it's almonds. We're growing more almonds and pistachios than any place in the world. The farmers, every one of those, thought there would never be a glut. But glut is the story of overproduction. And so, will the nut find a glut? And if so, you know, what is going to be the future of, of, of labor and all these other questions? And, and that's what, you know, we've got a million and a half acres of almonds now here. Is it too big of a bet? It's not just our local farmers that are growing them. We have hedge funds and pension funds from back east that have come in. And they're farming this land now, extracting this water. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear about some people. Um, you especially, you set out to um, to tell the story of Stuart Resnick. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a name that uh, we don't, I mean, I know him now because from the book, but uh, he's the richest farmer in America, right? You're saying, and a fascinating character. And yeah, we'll uh, talk about him. He's fun. Yeah, talk about him following the break and, and uh, some other uh, interesting uh, characters. Uh, the book is The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. The author is Mark Arax. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio. Join Utah Public Radio and KCPW's Jazz Time host, Steve Williams, for our summer concert series. He'll be there introducing our performances by Ryan Conger Trio and the Blue Blazers Band on the beautiful side of the vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. July 28th. See you there. Ticket information at upr.org. I don't want to see nobody but you. I don't want to see nobody but you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about water. The Dreamt Land is the title of the book, subtitled Chasing Water and Dust Across California. The author is Mark Erex. And you're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like, 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So I wanted to talk about some of the fascinating characters in the book. And by character, you know, these are real-life people. This is nonfiction. Uh, Stuart Resnick, tell us about him. Uh, Stuart Resnick is the biggest farmer 
in the United States. He grows more almonds, more pistachios, more pomegranates, more mandarin oranges than any other person. And he's like the old barons of wheat who used to live um, on Knob Hill in San Francisco and then farm the, 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 the valley in an industrial way. So he's not of this place. He's never driven a tractor, cranked open an irrigation valve. He's never put his foot on the shoulder of a shovel and dug down into the soil. Uh, he wouldn't even know one of his Valencia orange groves from one of his Washington naval orange groves. The land to him isn't real. It's, it's, it's an economy of scale on a scale no one's ever tried. He actually grew up in New Jersey, where his father, like my father, ran a bar. And he came to California in the 50s to remake himself. And he remade himself into a graduate of UCLA Law School, a cleaner of L.A. buildings, a vendor of security alarms, a seller of flowers in a pot. He was even a minter of Elvis plates and Princess Diana dolls when he owned the Franklin Mint. And he became a bottler of Fiji Island water, Fiji water, and a farmer of the San Joaquin Valley dirt. And so, you know, this guy's gotten so big, he, he doesn't even know how big he is. And it's a secret empire, like most of them in the middle are. And so it took me 10 years to pierce this empire. And at some point, he invites me into his mansion on Sunset Boulevard in Beverly Hills. And we begin a conversation that a kind of a cat and mouse game that goes on for a decade as I'm trying to figure out what he's up to, uh, his, his bending of water, his bending of land. Um, one of the uh, interesting facts that you report, and <clears throat> probably not uh, confined to Stuart Resnick, um, his off-the-books uh, pipeline, his procur- procurement of, of water through... Right, right. So, so here he is in Beverly Hills, and up and over the mountain is the center of his agricultural empire in a place called Lost Hills. And obviously, those you couldn't find. They're only separated by 80 miles as the crow flies, but you couldn't find two more different places. And so in the midst of this drought, how is this guy, when, 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 when he is relying on those, those, those systems uh, that we built to bring in water, but those systems aren't bringing in any, more, in any water because it's drought time, how is he you know, getting ready to harvest this record crop? As I'm driving all along, these, these, these just these, you know, these in the middle of nowhere, but it isn't nowhere because you look to your right and left and it's all these orchards and fields. You know, what's going on? And I find one of his field men who takes pity on me. And he says, look, there's a pipeline, a secret pipeline that extends across the old Tulare Lake Basin and it is pumping water out of one of these aquifers and then moving that water via these these irrigation pipes, you know, 40, 50 miles into Stuart Resnick's orchards. And he's teamed up with another billionaire who's pumping the water out and then selling it to him via this pipeline. He told me where to find the pipeline. And indeed, there it was, ironically, right in the, in the, in the shadow of our aqueduct, 
just snaking along the ground, slithering, okay, this silver kind of snake. And so I get out, I find this thing. I slap it, and it kind of slaps back at me with this the cold vibration of water. And so I start tracing this, this, this water back to the very place that it's being pumped out of the ground. Um, and in and, and that place, is 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 a is, a, is an aquifer uh, where the ground is sinking, you know, to a degree not seen almost anywhere in the world. The land is sinking, so you know there was a little stealth <laughs> involved in telling this story. And in in the thing I wanted to do was, as a writer, I wanted to I wanted to write these stories. I wanted to to, to bring language to them. Write it as if it was a novel. Uh, the last thing I wanted was people to fall asleep in the middle of a book about water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're reading about water, but you're really not. You're reading about these characters and these men, and you're seeing these archetypes of California that came, you know, uh, in the 1850s, and, and you're seeing those archetypes, that they're, they're, they're progeny on the land today. And it's, it's really this, this incredible tapestry. Well, it's really a treasure story, right? It's good. You know, water is gold. It's... Uh... It is. It's uh, you know it's um, it, it's fundamental. Uh, you mentioned earlier um, Mormons have a part in this uh, history, this story. So the Mormons march across the prairie in the eighteen in eighteen forty seven. They're searching for Eureka. We know what happens to Joseph Smith. Um, Brigham Young is the new prophet, and he's trying to find a new Zion. At the same time, there's another Mormon leader, a gentleman named Sam Brannan, who's this wonderful, beautiful contradiction. He's a womanizer, a drinker, a brawler, and he sails from New York to California with his own flock of Latter-day Saints. He believes he has found Canaan right there on the edge of the Pacific, and he tries to talk Brigham Young into coming to California. But the prophet has already set his eyes on the valley where the broad waters of the Great Salt Lake glisten in the sunbeams. Now, this wasn't an easy land, and Brandon kept telling him, no, 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 you're picking too hard of a land. But Young thought it was the perfect land, because, you know, only a people deserving of the crown of Latter-day Saints could make a community thrive in such a place. So what does Brandon do? Brandon discovers that John Sutter, one of our early pioneers, has found gold. And so he decides that he's going to take this secret, the discovery of gold, and he's going to sell it to the world, and he's going to make California boom another way. So Brannon boards this ferry, goes from the Sacramento River to San Francisco. Uh, He doesn't have a drop of whiskey in him, but as he's walking down Montgomery Street in downtown San Francisco in 1848. He, he, he starts whooping it up, and he has this quinine bottle filled with gold flakes. He begins to shout, gold, gold, gold from the American River. He knows what he's doing. He's a newspaper man. He founded the first newspaper, Sam Brandon, in San Francisco. And he knows that what he's just shouted will make the perfect banner headline. His shout.
out reaches all the way to the New York Herald, and then it reaches the world. So the Mormons jump-started this state. They were there from the beginning. They were there in, 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 in developing some of the most intricate and far-reaching irrigation systems. And, and, and so that story is also woven into this tapestry. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. We just have uh, two or three minutes left. Uh, we talked earlier in the conversation, I'd like to end it here as well. Um, uh, we used the word hubris, only you say Californians don't, don't uh, say it that way, right? Um, but it, you know, it takes some hubris to bend the water, to move the rain, to bend people, to, you know, to, to completely change the landscape. Um, hubris, of course, and Greek tragedy didn't end well. Uh, what, what do you think is likeliest to happen going forward? No, it, 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 didn't, it didn't end well in, in, in myth. Um, you know, it's this fantastic story of, of, of guile, vision, greed, will, defiance of gravity, even some magic we'll throw in. Uh, I don't know where it's going to end. It doesn't look like it's adding up to a great ending right now. Um, I think the groundwater uh, regulations will, will, will um, create a new opportunity. You know, I've been up, I'm writing a magazine piece right now about the town of Paradise that was burned off the map, literally. Um, when I drove up there, I was expecting to find a kind of mountain village in the Sierra there. What was built was this kind of, um, we basically took a piece of L.A. and planted it on this ledge in between these two canyons, which have this history of wildfire. And, and, and it, 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 they almost planted this town on this geologic chimney. And what happened what was, is what was destined to happen. So when you talk about hubris, you know, California has to figure out, you know, we've, we've allowed the locals to make these decisions about the land. And the, the, the locals haven't made wise decisions. So we're going to have to, you know, figure this out. Um, we've got six to eight million people living in the wildland urban interface right in the path of wildfire. And, and so you might call hubris crazy. Well, we've uh, reached the end of our time. Fascinating book, The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Mark Erex has uh, joined us. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for letting me do a little riff here. Appreciate <laughs> it. Very, very cool. Um, tomorrow, we uh, have a conversation with the world's first and only stand-up economist. Um, and uh, you, you seems like a, a contradiction in terms. Uh, he is well-versed in economy. He's very funny. Uh, and he's a Salt Lake City resident. Yoram Bauman is his name. We're going to talk about climate change. We'll talk about uh, carbon tax. He's passionate about that, a proponent of that. And uh, many other topics. Joram Bauman, the world's first and only stand-up economist. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time. Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
Over the Memorial Day weekend, Tyler Riggs and David Fawcett came into the UPR studio to talk, to listen, and hopefully to bridge the current cultural and political divide. Both heartily recommended one small step we can all take. We need to learn, I think, as a society to just get along better. Invite your neighbors over to a barbecue that have completely different beliefs than you. We've got to start having the barbecues. I need to reach out to people in starting in the neighborhood that I don't talk to and get to know them. And you don't have to become best friends, but you should find some element of common ground. If you'd like to participate, go to upr.org and sign up for StoryCorps' One Small Step. Listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. 